the last recommendation I wrote on the brand was shut it down. Long story short, I decided this place isn't going to move fast enough or reach high enough. So I submitted my resignation letter. We bought a home in Connecticut. Wow. I was headed off to go to work. And it was funny. The vision manager tore up my resignation paper, sent me home and said, I'll talk to you over the weekend. And so in a series of conversations, I came to the point of view that if you don't want to step up and be the change you want to see and try to make things better, you're running away from things. So I decided I wasn't going to run away. I was going to do everything I could to make myself better, make our teams better, help make the division better. It was a huge decision. Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. I'm Andrew Tarvin, humor engineer. And I'm Roman Segel, recovering marketer. Andrew and I both got our start at PNG, the Procter and Gamble company, where we both had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at PNG. In this series, through conversations with fellow PNG alums, we hope to go deeper with the leaders you already know but want to know more about, how they got their start how they make it work, and what keeps them going. It's kind of like bringing a microphone to a cup of coffee, or in my case, hot chocolate. On today's show, we're talking to P&G alumni leader, A.G. Laffley, P&G's former CEO. It was a great conversation about his unique take on work and life. It was actually a far-ranging discussion, which we've broken up into two episodes. This is part one, and the second part of our conversation will air next week. So be sure to mash that subscribe button in your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss out. AG needs no introduction, but here's a quick bio. AG Laffley served as P&G CEO twice from 2013 to 2015 and from 2000 to 2009, when I actually began my career. But he actually started at the company in 1977 after receiving his MBA from Harvard, serving in the U.S. Navy in Japan, and getting a BA from Hamilton College. Once at P&G, AG rose through the ranks to lead the iconic laundry and cleaning business, working on some of the company's biggest innovations like Liquid Tide and Tide with Bleach. He then led all of P&G's Asian operations through much of the 90s, turning to head P&G's fast-growing beauty business and all of North America's sales. Upon becoming CEO in 2000, AG revitalized the company under the mantra, Consumer is Boss, focusing the company on billion-dollar brands and establishing many new brands, categories, and approaches to innovation. And beyond P&G, AG's actually remained active in the world of business and entrepreneurship, serving on President Obama's Jobs Council, chairing the Cincinnati Center City Development Corp., and serving on the boards of Dell, GE, Legendary Entertainment, and Snapchat. AG's received numerous honors, including an Edison Achievement Award, and in 2013, he co-wrote the book Playing to Win, which has defined his continued passion for innovation and entrepreneurship. What I really love about this conversation is how open AG was about his personal and professional experiences. AG was my CEO when I started at P&G, so it was really interesting to hear about his early path, which preceded me, many of which informed and defined his career trajectory. There's a healthy impatience that you'll hear a little bit from those early days, and even some early choices you might not have expected AG to make. AG and I talked about the tension between innovating, pushing boundaries with big ideas, and, and focus that is needed to make hard decisions and execute with excellence, because it can't all be about just strategy. One thing that's really interesting is this idea of being an inside outsider or something AG introduced me to. And you'll find that 
AG was a bit of one of those at PNG. He was able to see things with a perspective that is focused on what really matters. Some of that was gleaned by getting a later start at PNG than most of us do, but it was also informed by his time in Asia, where AG didn't necessarily speak the language of the consumer, so he had to really observe and understand what the fundamental truths were at play. Ultimately, AG is a firm believer that life's a series of chapters, and we have to make the choice to keep an open mind to what's next, not be complacent, and always find ways to seek to stretch ourselves. It was a really far-ranging conversation, which we've broken up into two episodes. This is the first. The second one will air next week. But let's dive right in. We hope you'll enjoy our conversation with A.G. Lafley. A.G., welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here. So, A.G., I don't think you really need an introduction. Many already do know your professional story. You served as P&G CEO twice from 2013 to 2015 and from 2000 to 2009 when I began my career. But you actually started the company in 1977 after receiving your MBA from Harvard, serving in the U.S. Navy in Japan, and getting a BA from Hamilton College. At P&G, you rose through the ranks to lead the iconic laundry and cleaning business, working on some of the company's biggest innovations like Liquid Tide and Tide with Bleach. You actually then led P&G's Asia operations through much of the 90s, returning to head P&G's fast-growing beauty business and all of North America's sales. When you became CEO in 2000, you revitalized the company under the mantra, consumer is boss, focusing the company on billion-dollar brands and establishing lots of new brands, categories, and frankly, approaches to innovation. And beyond P&G, which we're going to talk about a lot today, you've actually remained active in the world of business and entrepreneurship, serving on President Obama's Jobs Council, chairing the Cincinnati Center City Development Corp, and serving on the boards of Dell, GE, Legendary Entertainment, and Snapchat. You've received numerous honors, including the Edison Achievement Award, and in 2013, you co-wrote the book Playing the Win, which has defined your continued passion for innovation and entrepreneurship. AG, there's a lot in there that I really, I know we're going to talk about, but I guess what I'd really like to know is, who were you at the beginning of your career journey? Can you tell us a story or a lesson from before you got your start? I was a kid from a semi-rural upstate New York community. It was called Burnt Hills, New York. I think I grew up in, uh, I definitely was a, a child of the 50s. What does that mean, A.G.? Yeah, uh, we didn't lock the doors, the front or the back door. We didn't lock the car. I was thinking about my childhood, and I, there's sort of three things that I think about. One was the back door. It was always open, and that was my my way to freedom. Second <laughs> of all was my bicycle. I learned to ride a bicycle early and that was my transportation. And I could pretty much go as far, roam as far as my bicycle would take me. And I guess the third thing was I was just given an incredible amount of independence and freedom. I was uh, the oldest of four kids, um, the only boy. I was expected to take on certain responsibilities fairly early and obviously take care of all my sisters. So yeah, it was an interesting world. I don't know. Unfortunately, I don't think it exists in enough places in the world or in the U.S. anymore, but it worked out for me. I, I had a great time as a kid. I had a lot of fun. What did, what did mom and dad do? My dad actually worked for GE for, I want to say, 20 to 25 years. When I was born, he had just gotten out of the Army Air Force Mm -hmm. And had gone back to complete his undergraduate degree in the GI Bill. Mm -hmm. So I don't really remember it, but I was at Clarkson Tech in upstate New York while he was getting his undergraduate degree. And then they dragged me to 
the University of Michigan where he got his <laughs> MBA. And then they dragged me to the University of Indiana where he was working on his doctorate. And I think he got tired of academics. He needed a job. He wanted to get paid and he joined the General Electric Company and he spent 20 to 25 years there. If P&G's pack and go, GE was pretty similar except for growing up in upstate New York near their Schenectady headquarters at the time. We pretty much moved every three or four years after that. I went to three different high schools. Wow. So back then, yeah. what did you want to be when you grew up? Well, <laughs> every kid, right? I think I wanted to be a baseball player and a basketball player for a long time, but those dreams ended when A, I stopped growing in <laughs> seventh and eighth grade. I was one of the taller kids in sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. And then all of a sudden I was the shortest guy on my basketball team by the time high school ended. And then I came to grips with the reality of my physical limitations and skills mm -hmm. in both sports. And, and so I shifted my interests, but I didn't shift far. I, I honestly wanted to be a coach and I wanted to be a teacher. And I think at the time I would have been quite happy being the kind of coach that I was lucky to have in school and being like one of the teachers that were important mentors to me when I was growing up. So what about early jobs? How'd you, how'd you actually first make money when you were bouncing around to all those different towns with your folks? Okay. I'm like the classic story. Your grandparents tell you, I started with a lemonade stand. <laughs> I'll fill in the snow both ways. <laughs> yeah. I mean, peanuts resonates with me. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I started with the lemonade stand. I mowed lawns. Yeah landscaping, shoveled driveways. We had a lot of snow. We lived in the snow belt. I had a paper route. I'm at the peak, I had three paper routes. So I was out at like five o'clock in the morning. I pretty much always worked at least part-time. I, I had my first summer job at 15. It was kind of funny. My friend and I were falsifying our driver's licenses so we could be 18 to get a job at the Chicago Burlington and Quincy Railroad in the south uh -huh. side of Chicago because they were paying like 250 to 3 bucks an hour when the minimum wage was i want to say 90 cents to a buck which is a lot of money when you're yeah. 15 right so yeah i worked for the railroad loading freight cars at night i worked for a machine metal shop running punch presses and riveting machines i worked for a paper company working on the end of the paper lines think of the paper rolling lines like we make tissue towel on yeah i worked for the gibson greeting card company unloading trucks, loading trucks. I mean, I chased manual labor that paid well <laughs> <laughs> because having, having, well, first of all, I was responsible for all of my spending money and I was responsible for my spending money when I went to college. My, my parents expected us to some way or another get a scholarship and get some help. And then we were fortunate and my parents would pay for tuition and room and part of board, and then you took care of the rest of it. Yeah. There's one, one other funny thing that just came to mind, and I laugh about this and, and was just talking to my sisters a while ago and we were talking about it, but I was the dumbest guy in my kitchen. And my mom would collect all of our report cards at the end of every quarter and gather us together one at a time and give us the feedback that she got from the parent teachers, interviews, whatever. And I'm the only person in my family that, that didn't skip one or more grades. Both my parents skipped a grade, two of my sisters skipped a grade, and one of my sisters skipped two grades. Wow. 
Wow. And, and it was funny. I was also the only one that disappointed because I don't think I ever brought home all A's. So I would always get quizzed about the subject, whatever it was that I didn't get an A in that quarter of that semester. And I had the same pat answer. You know, I really wasn't that interested in that subject. I didn't like the teacher. I'd been more <laughs> excited. I would have done better. Then my mother would pull out my report card. And in addition to the subject grades, you'd have these, these other assessments. The comments. Your, <laughs> yeah. And every year from kindergarten through junior high, I got marked down for does not use free time constructively. <laughs> <laughs> And I think what was going on was I was at least ADD. I might have been ADHD, and I was just a high energy, high activity, on the go kid. Mm -hmm. And my attention span wasn't the greatest in the world, right? So I learned over time. By the time I got to high school, it was starting to work itself out. But it's pretty funny. I always yeah. laugh about that. That's great. <laughs> How would you say you're similar or different from that younger version of yourself with the energy trying to find? the next thing to, to, to do? Well, I guess it's funny. I didn't find out about this until after I retired the first time, but my nickname with a number of people apparently at P&G was Teenage Boy. <laughs> and Diana still calls me Boy. <laughs> and one of my favorite teachers, I had him twice for English in high school, called me Ageless Allen Youth Without Shame. So I would say I still am pretty boyish in some ways, and I'm curious. I have pretty high energy, and I'm just interested in a lot of things and in trying a lot of things. So that part's the same. The part that's gotten a lot better is my ability to focus, which I think I turned from a weakness into a strength because I had to. Yeah. And frankly, just for lack of a better word, judgment. I mean, I got in all the usual kinds of trouble that boys get into when they're preteens and teens and even in college, right? In rural areas. I mean, I had a motor scooter when I was 14. I had a motorcycle. I had a car. And what do you do when you have all those things? You drive too fast, right? Mm -hmm. And you mm -hmm. drive them in places where you're not supposed to drive them. And when you have that much freedom and you can run around and it's a semi-rural area, you find yourself playing in areas that you're not supposed to be playing. And so I was adventurous and, <laughs> and I had high energy. And so I was probably pushing the envelope a few times and I don't do that anymore. <laughs> well, what's interesting about that juxtaposition is the AG I know as the AG who is my CEO, there were always these big ideas, right? These let's stretch the limits, let's go further. But as the CEO, it's so interesting. As you were, right before you were going to say focus, I knew that's what it was because that's what I'd always heard about you from people in your personal and professional circle, but observed as well. Like you can't have, you you do need to have the wild, crazy, big ideas to motivate and inspire people, but you've got to help us focus in on the two to three things we're going to do really well that when we pick from that. So it actually, it kind of makes a lot of sense seeing how you grew up to hear that. So AJ, I want to fast forward to the beginning of your career. You went to school, you went to the Navy, you got your MBA, and you ended up in the halls of P&G in the late 70s and you kind of rose through the ranks through the 80s. Were there any early lessons or stories from the, those early years in the cleaning division of the company, as they called it back then? Well, unlike most P&Gers, I didn't 
joined the company until a week or two before my 30th birthday. Mm-hmm. I had worked not just in the Navy, but on a number of jobs. I'd even taught school for a while in my mm-hmm. 20s. I kind of wandered around. And I think that I was also at the absolute end of the Vietnam era veterans, right? Mm-hmm. So we were kind of the last class at Harvard Business School that had a meaningful number of guys and, and women who had served in the military one way or another. I had a five-year-old son. My wife was working. So I would say I felt a little different. On the other hand, it made me very impatient. And I don't know if you recall, I don't even know if we had the brand assistant job in the last 10 or 20 years. I think we finally did away, did mm-hmm. away with that. But that was sort of a hazing job that they gave you for the first 12 months. And then if you, if you survived the hazing, you went off to sales training, and then you came back as an assistant brand manager. But if I cut through everything, I guess I would say I worked on a couple of good brands that were frankly not doing very well. You know, I started out on Joy. Mm-hmm. Joy was like the third company priority in the dishwashing liquid business, and it was headed downhill then. Mm-hmm. I then worked on Tide. Tide was really struggling. We were declining on the top line. We weren't making anywhere near the kind of profit or cash that we should have been. So I kind of was getting a little bit frustrated because I joined this company because I thought P&G was the best in the consumer branding and uh, products area. And what I found was that, my goodness, we were very product myopic. We didn't, in my view, believe enough in brands. We weren't in touch with the consumer, which totally surprised me. Remember, I came out of retail, Mm -hmm. which is very consumer centric when it's run well in services. And I was just astounded that P&G wasn't very connected to the consumer. And I guess the last thing which really amazed me was we didn't seem to be all that concerned that we weren't doing well. We weren't not only not winning, we were underperforming. And that kind of bugged me. So um, was that the perspective of, because I was the young, impatient digital marketer, always kind of down on what we were doing, that kind of impatience of youth, and you were a little older as you were starting, or was that symptomatic of kind of where the company was in that era being very product and efficacy driven versus also communications driven? No, I was more impatient. Okay. And I think that my impatience was, yeah, I think our impatience might've been driven by some of the same motivations. I just... I felt like I could do better and I could do more. I felt like our brand group or team could do better and could do more. And I certainly felt like our division could do more. And I was very, very frustrated by the fact that there was way too much emphasis placed on short-term pricing and temporary price reductions and promotion Mm -hmm. because we were always trying to make this quarter, right? Or this semester or this year. Never playing the long game. Yeah, I was very frustrated because I sort of felt the company viewed their laundry and cleanings product, cleaning products division as a cash cow. So mm-hmm. as long as the cash came in at the end of the year and then it was reinvested in other businesses that were more attractive from a growth standpoint or reinvested in international expansion. And I mean, one of the things I came to believe very deeply is that a lot of those mature businesses still had a lot of growth left in them. Mm-hmm. They still had a lot of consumer appeal left in them. The brand still had a lot of upside left in them. And I think that set in, in those first few years, because I was so frustrated by it. Were there any moments like specific 
encounters where you pushed back hard and you either kind of won or lost those battles to change it for the vision you had in, in that division of the company? Yeah, I mean, two things happened. One is I quit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. And uh, I quit, I think, in year six. So I'd, I'd spent a year on the Dawn brand, which was great. I really enjoyed it. I spent a year on the Cheer brand, which was pretty good. We stabilized the business, actually got it growing. The team did. And then I spent a year on, on a new liquid detergent brand. It was called Omni. I won't bore you with all the details, but we pulled the plug on it because it had a builder ingredient that was banned in Canada and then was banned in Long Island. And it, that was a period of zero phosphate legislation mm -hmm. spreading across the U.S. And, and we had a product that had a phosphate mm -hmm. substitute. So the last recommendation I wrote on the brand was shut it down. And the second to last recommendation I wrote was if you're serious about heavy duty liquids, you better do it untied because we'd failed on tag, we'd failed on gain, we'd failed on, well, we hadn't succeeded on era or solo and Omni was the fifth try. So at any rate, long story short, I was sitting in this little cubicle waiting for an assignment and I decided this place isn't going to move fast enough or it isn't going to reach high enough. So I was contacted by McKinsey. McKinsey was my best, well, let's put it this way, my most generous job offer out of business school and they wanted to bring me in. And then I met some guys from a little consulting group called Connecticut Consulting and I decided to join them. But no, I, I submitted my resignation letter. We bought a home in Connecticut. Wow. I was headed off to go to work and it was funny. Steve Donovan, who was then the division manager, tore up my resignation paper, sent me home and said, I'll talk to you over the weekend. <laughs> And I, I, I tried to argue with him that he wasn't going to change my mind. And he said, I, I don't want to talk. I'll see you over the weekend. Hmm. And so in a series of conversations on starting Friday night, continuing Saturday into Sunday afternoon, I pretty much came to the point of view that if you don't want to step up and be the change you want to see and try to make things better, you're running away from things. So I decided... I wasn't going to run away. I was going to hang in there and I was going to do everything I could to make myself better, make our teams better, help make the division better. And so, it was big. I mean, it was, it was a huge decision. It was a huge decision because I would say psychologically, psychologically, my family was gone yeah. <laughs> and then I had to bring them back. <laughs> So. I cannot imagine both of those conversations, <laughs> the decision to leave and decision to pull them back. A manager once told me you should never run away from something. You should always run towards something. And it sounds like Steve Donovan kind of convinced you of that because maybe these consulting jobs were running away and it was almost like charge at the problem internally. Yeah, I, I, I think that's very insightful. I do think that Running away is just a form of procrastination, right? Mm -hmm. And not coming to grips with reality and not seeing things as they are. And frankly, not, not challenging yourself. It was very interesting though. Steve was very shrewd. He never put that idea directly into my head. He just kept me talking. <laughs> <laughs> and he kept putting out challenges, okay? And he kept teasing me with the challenges that, hey, 
you going to help us fix this or are you going to run away from it? Or don't just be frustrated because we haven't tried this or tried that. Do something about it. So it was, yeah, it was very shrewd, very excellent psychology. <laughs> you came to the conclusion yourself, right? Yeah. I knew he was doing it to me, but by the time Sunday evening rolled around, my mind was changing, right? So. Yeah, and the the bigger inflection point isn't the decision to stay. It's the decision to change your approach. And I'm guessing that was that turning point in not necessarily your fortunes, because it sounded like you were progressing along in the assignments, but your ability to kind of make big change on the business in the years that followed. Well, you mentioned it earlier, but I think there's a very healthy tension between stretching for possibilities, right? And focusing on the few things that matter, the few choices that matter that you can execute with excellence. And it's an incredibly healthy tension and being able to keep those two things, not just in mind, but in front of the team and in front of the organization, I think inspires better performance. On, on the team's part and, and on the individual's part. But it's a little bit tricky, right? Because we've driven off the cliff when we've gone for a vision that's a bridge too far mm-hmm. or that we didn't have the capability to deliver or we didn't have the strategy that, that would deliver it. And I think we've also suffered from small ambition and not being willing to change, not being willing to take risks. So it's always a delicate balance and uh, there's no one right answer in any given circumstance or situation, but I, I like that tension. I'm comfortable with that tension. And I learned slowly over time how to help myself deal with that tension and then help the team or help the organization come to grips with that tension and frankly, turn it into doing things and accomplishing things that we didn't think maybe we could at the outset. So I think another thing, we talked about this a few weeks ago, is in work and life, a lot of folks are insiders and and some are outsiders. Both of them have their advantages and disadvantages. And there's a really interesting HBR article you've mentioned before about being an insider outsider. And I do think that applies to you, having heard a little bit more about your early story but can you explain that concept of being an insider-outsider? What does that even mean? And and why do you feel like you're one of those? Well, I first learned about it at my 25th or 30th reunion at Harvard Business School. They have a couple of days of case studies, which are a lot of fun, right? Because that's their primary teaching methodology. And this professor, Bauer, had a thesis and did research And he concluded that too much of the conversation at companies about succession, whether it was CEO succession or succession for key jobs, was about do we choose the insider or do we choose the outsider? Mm -hmm. And his research claimed that that they learned if you could find this combination of inside-outsider, it was actually a little bit of the best of both worlds. And I guess I would say the two things that made me a bit of an outsider were the fact that I was older, married with a family and had a non, pretty fairly non-traditional P&G background when I joined the company. And I think the other thing was that I spent eight or nine years of my Navy and P&G career in Asia And at the times I was there, it wasn't exactly the growth center of the company or the focus of the company or where the company was investing a lot of its best resources, right? And uh, I always joke about Asia. In the U.S., 
we tend to think things are black or white. And in Europe, as best I can tell, and I spent a year studying there during university in Paris, the Europeans think everything's a bit gray. (laughs) A great thing about many Asian cultures and countries is they understand that the world is black and white at the same time. So I do think that those two perspectives gave me a different perspective. And then, so how does it manifest itself? I think one is I always had more of an external point of view than I felt the vast majority of people I was working with inside P&G did or do. And it's, it's always a challenge for us, right? P&G gets very internally focused, right? And I always tried to maintain uh, a very external um, focus. The whole consumer's boss thing was very simple. We really made it work in Asia because we're working across cultures and languages. We were not the leading company, except for right. the Philippines. We were struggling to get a toehold or a beachhead, and we just had to stay focused on the consumer first. And the moments of truth, the consumer value equation, the desired consumer experience, all of that was designed to keep us focused on job one. Who, whom are we serving? And how are we going to serve her? And it was mostly her. Now, of course, that's a much broader mix. So that external reality is important. The other thing is you can be more objective. I always felt like I had no problem calling out a problem. And some people are reticent to do that, right? They don't want to criticize the company. They don't want to criticize their teammate. They fear that if you call out a problem and define it very specifically and talk about the really reallys that somehow... They're not being loyal to the team or the company. So I think I was pretty okay at that. And at the same time, because I was observing the company and the culture from a little bit of an outside perspective, I think I had a really good understanding of the culture and I had a really good understanding of all of the strengths of the people. I mean, P&G still doesn't understand how much talent it has. I mean, I've seen a lot of companies, okay, around the world. Some of the ones that show up at the top of the rankings, and P&G still gets way more than its fair share of talent from all over the world. And then the last one is I just had a willingness to change. I wasn't afraid of change. I kind of like change. And that thing we talked about earlier, I had no problem with this tension between stretching possibilities and focusing on the few things that would really make a difference and help us move toward those. So, I mean, it's kind of long-winded, but I do think you have sort of a, a different viewpoint a different mindset, and you're comfortable with behaviors and change that maybe aren't middle of the road in the organization that you're in. It's interesting because the time you were in Asia, I remember when I went to my first startup, my boss said, you're going to be betting on yourself, not on the logo on your business card. And while P&G is a respected company out in Asia, you guys weren't the market leaders. You couldn't rest on kind of all the advantages of conscience and market share leadership, right? A, with retailers, with consumers, with, with customers. So every decision was do or die. And it seems like you really had to distill it down to the most basic truth, be at the moment of truth, uh, the axiom of consumer's boss. Because if you didn't do that, you didn't have a backstop, so to speak, out there, which I, I think forced almost like a different kind of no BS approach to the work. I mean, we were fighting for survival 
in some countries. I mean, the Japanese were routinely kicking our butt. I, I don't know if this is the real number, but we lost money in Japan for 13, 14, 15 years in a row. Mm-hmm. And John Smale, bless his heart, almost pulled out. And fortunately, they put a relatively young Dirk Yager there, and he finally hit a home run with Whisper, always, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a product that was really superior, that consumers really appreciated. We were way behind in India. We were getting crushed in Korea. The big advantage we had in China is everybody started at the same time, right? China (laughs) opened everybody at the same time and it was a big race land grab and we did a pretty good job there. But yeah, it was totally different, right? In the US and in lots of parts of Europe, even in Canada and parts of Latin America, we are the leader and it can lead to a little bit of complacency. It can lead to occasional arrogance and it can lead to, unfortunately, thinking that if you do the same things over and over again, you're going to somehow get a different result or a better result, which of course we know isn't the case. Definition of insanity. That's right. Uh, Another thing I'm just genuinely curious about, just you spent almost the, not the formative years, but the accelerating parts of your careers in Asia, in other markets, not surrounded by Americans and Europeans. If anything, you're an outsider out there, right? How did you balance the management of not necessarily more diverse cultures, but being an outsider managing in those cultures that were very different from your root habits and culture? Well, I think it really challenged all my senses. And what I mean by that is because I didn't speak any of the languages, mm-hmm. I labored away at Japanese and got through the Japanese for busy people and I could survive in the economy if I didn't have to do too much. But I certainly wasn't going to do a business meeting in Japanese and I wasn't going to work with a customer or supplier in Japanese. I knew 20 words of Chinese and and the list goes on. So I did a lot of learning with my eyes and I totally changed the way I would go into a market or go into a category or work with a team on the ground. And the old P and G would start with a briefing book, right? Go through the, the numbers, meet in the conference room, blah, 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 talk a lot, right? And we totally flipped it. We started in the store at the second moment of truth. We started with shop-alongs. We went into the homes and we worked our way through as best we could. The first moment of truth we asked, I I sat many times or stood many times and watched consumers in different countries actually go through doing the task using our product because I wanted to understand what they did. And I learned that most consumers cannot tell you what they do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then if you observe what they do, it's actually quite different, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, you're right. The competition was winning. So I had tremendous respect for the competition. And I think lots of companies get in trouble by not taking the competition seriously. And P&G gets into that problem occasionally. But no, I think you're right. I think being an outsider was a huge advantage. And the other thing in this, the cultural mosaic is just incredible in Asia, right? I mean, India, how many different languages and cultures, right? China, how many different languages and cultures? You can't just say Asia. Yeah, it's- No, there is no Asia, 
Yeah. Right. There is no Asia and there aren't even sub Asia's. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think just being open to, to all of that and then trying to focus on the very, when we could get a real insight about an unmet need or an unarticulated need, it was amazing what we could do because we are really good at inventing and formulating and designing products and packages when we understand what it is that the consumer really needs, what it is that she or he really wants. So that's all we were trying to do. The concept is not complicated. It's simple. It's like Sesame Street simple, but doing it is hard. <laughs> that's the hard part. Doing is always the hard part. And now a word from our sponsor. Today, we're talking to Anand Palagar with Leading to Win, a really unique pro bono platform founded and designed by A.G. Lafley. Leading to Win was built to serve the needs of founders and owners of small businesses and nonprofits, the vast majority of which are individuals and freelancers, one of the fastest growing segments of our economy. So Anand, how did you get involved with AG? Well, it's a really funny story, Roman. About three years ago, I got a call from an unlisted number. On the other end of that line was a gentleman who introduced himself as AG Lafley. Now, you didn't have to work at P&G to know who AG is. AG had called to ask me if I'd be interested in working with him on a nascent community initiative called the Sarasota Bayfront Planning Organization. Someone had told him that I had a similar passion towards improving our community, and that's ultimately how we met. Over the ensuing years, we created the Bay brand together, and I led the team behind its communications and community activation efforts. Personally, as a small business entrepreneur, it's incredibly rare to get the opportunity to work in the trenches with a global CEO like AG, particularly one who commands such a unique perspective on business and strategy. Watching each phase of the park unfold was like getting an education in business, strategy, and communications, and it has been a career highlight for me personally and professionally. That is so amazing. So how did that turn into what you're both doing now with Leading to Win? Fast forward to last year, and during the height of the pandemic, my conversations with AG began to evolve around the crushing state of affairs of the small business climate in specific industries and phases of evolution. AG wanted to share his knowledge to address key principles, tactics, and strategies that he had first-hand experience with during moments of crisis. And it was this, coupled with the aspirational challenge to think broader and cultivate a conversation that led to how Leading to Win was born. What AG successfully identified was that to succeed as proprietors or managers of small, for, and not-for-profit businesses, you have to fundamentally improve your leadership. In AG's articles, you'll find the foundational pillars of leadership and business strategy, coupled with his own insights from his many years in leadership. AG fundamentally believes there are three tasks of the leaders, leading the thinking for the business, also known as the strategy, leading the decision-making, and leading the doing or execution. That sounds a lot like the AG so many of us know. There's always a list of three. You know, I guess some things never change. And so in Leading to Win, we've built a collection of articles and short form reads that highlight the philosophy that effective leaders are made not born. Anyone can learn to lead more effectively to get more consistent, better results. Our sole objective is to share concepts and principles, best practices, and practical management tools that we know deliver better outcome and results. AGs of practitioners actually use the concepts practices, and has first-hand experience with what works, and just as importantly, what doesn't work. So launching in the midst of a pandemic, how does Leading to Win even identify the relevant content that can actually help this target audience of entrepreneurs? Now more than ever, this sort of work is needed by everyday entrepreneurs, managers, and business owners that are working hard every day to better their business and serve their consumers. We want to know what you're struggling with. 
where you're facing challenges, what's ultimately keeping you up at night, and that's how we can help. The core facet of Leading to Win is a conversational publishing platform. We welcome content that we believe furthers our objectives and contributes meaningfully to our purpose. We welcome feedback and input, and most importantly, questions. We may choose from time to time to publish thoughtful commentary, important questions, as well as answers to those questions that we believe could broadly benefit the community we intend to serve. So how does someone gain access to Leading to Win, and what can they expect? Well, you can visit us at leadingtowin.com. There you'll find articles, resources, and videos straight from an industry leader. And if you're a manager, startup entrepreneur, or freelancer, we want to hear from you. So feel free to reach out with an email or even a video. We'd love to hear from you. That's so great. Well, Anand, thank you so much for all the great work that you, AG, and the entire Leading to Win team are doing for the entrepreneurial community. Thank you for the opportunity, Raman. And now, back to our show. I just have to ask, as a young father, you had a young family and you were working all over Asia, working probably crazy hours. Balance is a, is a tricky thing to talk about, but just uh, I'm more con- interested in this kind of high-flying point of your career. And to be clear, that never stopped. But at that moment, with the young family, with things accelerating, being out there, how did you balance? How did it work out out there? But you, you raised a young son while while living in Asia. Well, I'm not sure that I ever achieved balance by anybody else's definition, especially mm-hmm. when I was in the Asia assignment or obviously in either of the CEO assignments. Mm-hmm. When we talked briefly, I, I have two sons. They're 14 to 15 years apart. My oldest son grew up when I was still in school, like my father. Mm-hmm. In my early days at P&G, I think he went off to college when I was maybe an advertising manager. So I did have time, okay, to coaches basketball and soccer and baseball. I did have time to get to every one of his school events. We did have time to do big brothers together. We did have time to spend more time together, right? My youngest son was a totally different challenge for him and for me and for his mother. And the biggest challenge was I was gone 75% of the time. Mm -hmm. So what I tried to do was make the most, one, stay connected, and to make the most of all the time that we did have together and be as high energy as I could and as present and as involved as I could. So many nights I would, I'd call him before he went to bed and at my best, we'd have a great conversation about his day, not about my day, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but at my worst, and this happened a couple of times, I fell asleep on the bed And my son's talking to me and I awaken and he's still talking to me, dad, dad. And then I tried very hard not to take weekends away. So I preferred to leave on Monday morning and come back on Friday afternoon. If I had to, I'd leave Sunday night and get back super early Mm. Saturday morning. And then I tried to devote the entire weekend as, as much as I could. Yeah. yeah. And I guess the last thing I did is, and, and this is an interesting thing about balance, personal balance and work-life balance. I've really come to believe that every individual has a different balance that works for her and for him. Yeah. It's a personal harmony. Very personal. Okay. And very personal with your partner and your family, right? So you have to find the one that works. And one of the insights I got too late 
okay, from Corporate Athlete, which was another program that we experimented with, which I thought was real added value was manage your energy, not your time, right? We all went yeah. through Stephen Covey, right? Manage your time, mm. right? Delegate this way, right? But that only gets you so far. And once I really understood the manage your energy, not your time, I wanted to make sure that I was bringing as much energy to my family and as much energy to my boys as I brought to the business. And that changed everything. And I guess the last thing I would say is I had no problem with accepting, especially in the last two jobs that the job was 24 seven. I, I accepted that, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but I knew how much sleep I needed. I knew how I needed to sleep. I knew I needed exercise every day. I knew I needed breaks. I wasn't good at sitting in two and three hour meetings. Not my thing. I had to mm -hmm. get up and walk around. So I learned to do like walking meetings. I learned to do, <laughs> to shorten things up. I learned to protect time and, and my energy and my calendar. I frankly had no problem with doing family things during quote unquote work hours, yeah. which I think yeah. some people do. If I had to go to the doctor, I went during the work hour. If I wanted to go see my son in play soccer in the afternoon, I went, right? Yeah, because so work's going to bleed into the personal hours, right? Yeah, exactly. Because it was just, it was just one big tapestry, right? Mm -hmm. And one life. And I think I got better and better at that over time, but boy, I wish I'd learned that early on. I guess the last thing I would say is I do believe that one of the great gifts of COVID-19 has been really using the technology, the tools and techniques that enable us to get work done very effectively and very efficiently without overly traveling. A lot of travel was a waste of time. I hated to travel for inside meetings. I had no problem traveling if I was meeting consumers, customers, suppliers, yeah, yeah. and and frankly, meetings. The P&G could absolutely <laughs> kill you with meetings. And my preference was, if we don't have to meet, let's not meet. <laughs> yeah. Or if we don't have to meet for two hours, let's meet for 20 minutes. So I do think that is so enabling and is freeing things up. I mean, it's amazing. It's at Snapchat and several other companies that I'm working on right now. We're really working hard to understand what's going to be the right mix of bringing people together because a lot of serendipity and innovation, right? And curiosity, right? And invention comes from having people rub up against each other. Yeah. Ideas flying around the room. Yep. Exactly. Con so conversations. You, you don't want to lose that, right? You absolutely don't want to lose those conversations. You don't want to lose those connections. You don't want to lose that collaboration. On the other hand, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that we've found ways to do. Well, frankly, we found some things we just don't need to do mm -hmm. <laughs> that we were doing, right? Eliminate. And then we found other things we can reduce and we found a whole bunch of stuff we can do a lot more effectively and efficiently. So I think we're in a world right now where work, what a job is and work-life balance is going to is in the process of dramatically changing. And I, I'm, I'm an optimist, so I think it'll be for the better. I think it'll be the, for the better for individuals. And I think it'll be for the better for companies that are, are, are progressive and want to change in a way that can improve their chances of winning. Yeah. I love what you say about almost that it's not balance. It's a personal harmony and it's a tapestry, right? Because it all kind of bleeds together and everyone's got to optimize their own formula. And we figure it out as we get older, as years go on. But I, I do think 
the past year has been this forcing function for organizations or people within organizations to kind of wake up and figure it out more because the rigid structures don't apply and my balance is not your balance. I think companies are starting to hopefully figure that out a little bit better to kind of optimize themselves for this new tapestry. Well, and also your kids need different kids, um, need different things and want different things at different stages and times in their growth and development too. Right. So it's just so different. I mean, (laughs) two kids, two very (laughs) unique and different kids, right. Two very unique and different jobs. But I do think if we can manage the travel thing and my view is reduce it and don't do unnecessary travel. And like, why do you have to do all these breakfast, lunches and dinners? Really? Yeah. Uh, total waste of time. Not a total waste of time, but often a waste of time. Yeah. But getting getting that right and and the technology as well or better than I do, but there's just so much technology that gives you so much more capability and so much more capacity than you ever had before. What I find funny, AG, though, we're, I'm observing this. I've been living on Slack and Zoom for years being in startups, but now that the world's doing this, there's almost like a, a pendulum in the other direction. With a lot of my younger friends now, when we need to have a meeting, we're like, I'm done with Zoom for the day. Why don't we both yeah. put on our Bluetooth and go for a walk and talk to each other, even though we're not in the same city? So it's the technology is great, but the technology is not the shiny object. It's what you choose to do with it. No, exactly. And and I think your point about putting on the Bluetooth and going for a walk in the park or a walk on the beach, in my case, in Sarasota, is really a good way to communicate, especially in one-to-one communications, right? Yeah. Zoom is, in my view, not, can be okay for that. But yeah, I mean, you've got you've to fit the tool to the job to be done, right? Yeah. And the pendulum swing, right? So we'll find the next two or three great tools and techniques to improve our creativity, our innovation, and, and ultimately our effectiveness results. From the way we use our energy and all these things. Yeah. I want to shift gears a little bit. So many in our audience are rising diverse professionals in a world that still has a lot of adversity to it. And even though your identity is one of the quote unquote majority, you were an early executive to prioritize diversity, equity, inclusion in the teams and honestly, the organizations you led. Why does equity and inclusion matter to you? Why does it still need to matter? We're not over it yet, but what would you tell the leaders here? Okay, first, I guess the first thing I would say, and I deeply believe this, is that it's a game changer, right? And I I think we may have touched on this, but I've always believed, and I think most of my experience affirms that diversity is sort of jacks are better. That, That like gets you to the starting line, right? And what drove my commitment to diversity was, again, the consumer. (laughs) As soon as, well, first of all, the U.S. demographics have changed dramatically, okay, over the last 20 years. And second of all, as we became more of an international company and aspired to be a global company, the demographics, the psychographics, everything changed. And our consumer was when 99% of Americans purchase at least one P&G brand or product every year, you're serving the entire diverse universe. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't feel like we had a prayer of understanding who she or he was, what she or he wanted, and then 
deliver that in our product, our brand promise, et cetera, et cetera. So my first driver was always the consumer. My second driver was innovation. And I always felt that one of our advantages in Asia was that we were competing against very homogenous competitors. Insiders. Well, the Japanese were formidable, right? The Mm -hmm. Koreans were formidable. The Indian, large Indian companies were formidable, but they were mostly Japanese, Mm -hmm. (laughs) okay? Mm -hmm. Exclusively Korean, predominantly Indian, and we needed to turn our differences, okay, our diversity into advantage. In the first place, you can turn it to advantage, I always felt, was on the innovation side. You know, it's a relatively small thing, but it was an important lesson for me. We had a very hard time recruiting the best male students out of the top Japanese universities. But you know what? When we turned our attention to the women, we could get the cream of the crop. Why? They didn't want to serve tea. They didn't want to be in the same work situation that they were in at home. Mm -hmm. They wanted more opportunity. They wanted to be able to do anything that anybody else um, could do. And many of them also, interestingly, were much more open to outside cultures, the outside world. They traveled a bit more. They were more curious. And, And that ended up being a hidden competitive advantage in our Japanese company. I felt we had a really strong cadre of women. I think we had a big advantage in China because in the beginning we were able to get a lot of really good kids out of the best Chinese universities because they wanted to open their minds to what was possible in the rest of the world. And I guess the last thing I would say is the runway is long and we have an insane amount of progress still to make. I mean, I went through a major, a major boycott by an organization called Focus on the Family, well-meaning, one of the largest Christian organizations in America. They were all upset because of a couple of decisions the company had made to, frankly, help our lesbian and gay communities become the best they could be to feel like they were part of an organization and part of a team and that they could bring their whole self to work. And uh, there was battle after battle. We battled in Saudi Arabia. We were the first company to get women veiled, of course, Mm -hmm. separated, okay, but into the office, Mm -hmm. okay? And my only point in all of this is the journey is continuous. You'll never get to, this is one of those aspirations or possibilities that'll never be fully realized. But if P&G, and I always felt they had a, had a real shot at this, if P&G can continue to make progress in this area, it's going to be a huge sustainable competitive advantage. They'll understand their consumer better. They'll be more innovative. They'll work together more constructively, productively, and creatively as teams. And uh, it's only upside. You have the best talent. That's exactly right. Because the best talent has... One of the other concepts that just hit home with me is I I sought out Peter Drucker. Yeah, yeah. He was my MBA, 
when I was <laughs> in Asia working, working in the Navy because I hadn't taken a business course in undergraduate school. I didn't even know whether I was going to go back to law school or back into a PhD program or back to business school. So I was reading through his books. And when I got back into Cincinnati and I had the North America job, I just called him up and I went out to see him. And I went out to see him two or three times a year. And he was in the last five years of his life, but I learned so much from him. But the, the knowledge worker concept is he was way ahead of his time. We are all freelancers. We are all independent operators. You can choose to go wherever you want to go. You can choose to do whatever you want to do. And you're, there are no limitations. You're only limited by your imagination, by your initiative, and by your ability and capability to do the job that needs to be done. And that is the world that we're in. So in that world, you better be improving at a fast rate and you better be one of the best at including everybody and welcoming everybody and encouraging everybody to bring their whole self, to bring their best self and, and to be a constructive and contributing part of the team. It's the only way you're going to win. So that's part one of our conversation with A.G. Laffley. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue our conversation with A.G., where we talk about some of his experiences after leaving P&G, how he views the future, his personal life, and of course, asking some questions about what he does for fun. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned, or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at pgalumpod.com. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. Now here's a preview of next week's episode. I've always been very interested in trying new things. And one of the things I did when I left the job is I took out a piece of paper and I drew a line down the middle. And on one side, I wrote down things I would like to try. And then the other side, I wrote the kind of people I'd like to try it with. I really believe life is about chapters and chapters are chances. When you finish a chapter, you don't stop. It's not the end of the book. You start the new chapter and the new chapter has a whole set of possibilities or chances and then you make choices. That's it for this week. I've been Roman Segel. And I'm still Andrew Tarvin. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PNG alumni podcast. We'll see you next time.